Hello and welcome along to the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight, and today I'm in the studio with Gareth Morgan, who, among many other things, is the leader of the recently formed Opportunities Party. Gareth, good morning. Oh, morning, Ed. And today we're talking all about uh, what the Opportunities Party's policies are, what their priorities are, and how they're going to impact uh, New Zealand's young professionals. But it's interesting, Gareth, because I was on your website this morning, and on your page of the Opportunities Party, where it talks all about you, uh, it, it mentioned that many people think you're, you're the guy who's against cats, or that, that rich guy, or the guy who sold out of Trade Me. Um, but it mentioned that there's, there's a lot more to you than that. And I, I just wondered whether you'd like to share a little bit about your story and how it all started, because it's a, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in Pataru, which is a small town in the southern Waikato, um, and I didn't get out of there until I went to university, um, and I went to Massey first, um, did four years there, then went on to Victoria University, did a PhD in economics, um, and I was work, worked for the Reserve Bank for a couple of years before I discovered that I was actually, it was in my DNA, um, I was unemployable. <laughs> um, in the sense that I'm very much of an ethos that progress should be based on merit and hard work. And I found in um, the public service, or my where I was in the public service, it depended far more on pleasing the boss, which didn't um, sit very well with me. So I went out very early in my career um, to start out on my own. And my first job... Well, my first business was Infometrics, which is a um, economic consultancy, still going these days. In those days, we didn't have much money, so Jan and I lived in a bus, um, and each morning I'd um, put a suit on and um, go off and talk to the New Zealand corporate sector and tell them what I thought was going to happen with the economy and, and why. So the first clients for that business were Faye Richwhite. Um, who in those days comprised Michael Fay and David Richwhite and a secretary, um, plus Southpac Finance, which was a precursor to National Bank by Sir John Anderson. So I had some pretty esteemed clients, but um, not two brass rises to rub together. So that went for a while, um, went for a long time actually. Um, and then I thought, well, I, the trouble with consulting is I could make a lot of money out of it. I was pretty good at it. Um, but as soon as I put my pen down, or in my case, shut my mouth, um, the money stopped coming in. <laughs> and I thought, well, this actually isn't a business at all. I'm actually just a high-paid professional. So what I then did is, um, and I was high-paid, you know, I was earning a lot of money, and my business partner said to me, Gareth, you know, it's got to the point where you spend more time managing your money than you do actually doing the work. How about you make a business out of managing money? And so the penny just dropped, you know, <laughs> good God, you know, here's a business that would make me money while I was sleeping. <laughs> now that is a real business. You know? Sounds like so a great business too. It's an awesome business. So <laughs> that was Gareth Morgan Investments that we built up to um, a business that had um, one and a half billion um, under management, which is a lot of money. Um, and I sold that business to Kiwi Bank, um, who now who now own that business and run it as Kiwi Wealth and they've taken it 
further to four and a half billion under management, which I could never have done. I mean, we got to 70 employees and I mm. wasn't even able to remember the names of the people on a Monday morning. And, you know, I'm a small business sort of guy. I'm not a big corporate sort of guy. So it was right for me to sell, sell the business. So with that business success, which was the most money I'd ever made selling Gareth Morgan Investments, and also, of course, I'd made a bit of money out of selling Trade Me as well, which son Sam had started. And I think you made about 50 business. million from that, didn't you? Yeah, so it wasn't quite as much as I made from the other one. But, um, you know, we're talking about a lot of money here. Well, yeah. for me, because, you know, I'm a guy that lives in a bus, for God's sake, you know, so I didn't exactly have <laughs> many outgoings and still, s- still don't. <laughs> were you still living in the bus at that time? No, no, we only lived in the bus until um, the third child came along and then we couldn't fit... <laughs> the men's. What now, type of bus is it? Is it kind it of like a, a school bus? Yeah, it was a Bedford SB3, the, the old railways buses. So Sam was sleeping in the boot um, <laughs> of this thing, and we'd had a set of bunks for the other kids. And no, it was cool. They were great years, actually, as I was building businesses. Um, but then we, Jane and I, we just got all this money, and you know, we didn't need any of it. I mean, what the hell did we do with it? And somebody on television said to me, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I think I'll just give it away because, you know, it's sort of disturbing my life. So, <laughs> of course, that became a bit of a story. Um, but it's a lot, it's, it's very hard to give money away in a responsible, you know, way. I mean, most of us never have that problem. We just think about how to make money, you know. <laughs> but giving it away in a responsible manner is quite hard. But so, so that was the start of Morgan Foundation, and Morgan Foundation has done a lot of um, philanthropic work around the world with um, uh, social development projects, um, both backing New Zealanders in the field, and there's some fantastic Kiwis out there doing awesome stuff, um, running hospitals in Bangladesh and you know, orphanages up in Vladivostok and you name it, and we've been involved with a lot of those projects. Meanwhile, while we're doing all this, we're riding, um, Joe and I were riding our motorcycles around the world. And, you know, we started doing that in India on the Himalayas in 2001. We're sitting up in the Himalayas. I said to her, how about we ride across the Silk Road? And she said, what's that? (laughs) You know, she thought it was a clothing factory. Um, And I said, oh, that's the road, I think, that goes from Venice to Beijing. So we worked that out and we, we rode across that and from then on we've been addicted and so every year, this year accepted, um, we've been riding motorcycles around the world. So last year we rode the length of Indonesia and we're planning a trip now from Nigeria across to Japan. So the beauty of those motorcycle trips is they put you, they immerse you in these two world of developing economies where people are very challenged mm. in terms of scratching a living, keeping their children alive and so on. So it really came home to me, gave me an education about life, really, that I could never, ever have got in New Zealand. Um, and, and, and that was cool in terms of um, one of the things that taught me is just how rich New Zealand is. We have no idea how rich we are. In terms of money or in terms of Everything, culture? Environment, stability, safety of your life, um, food on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not all about getting the next the next house or, you know, just to 
be able in this world to put food on the table and bring your family up in a safe environment. So it's a huge privilege. There's no way is it normal um, when you go right through East Asia and Africa and all the rest of these places that we've ridden these bikes. So I really, be, at that point, I think, saw New Zealand in a different light mm-hmm. and began to really appreciate just how well off we are. But, of course, being an economist and having studied this economy backwards, I know that not all boats have been rising and that there's a lot of people who aren't doing so well in New Zealand. And for such a rich country, that's totally unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And so that started to wind me up in terms of I need to try and do something about this. I'm in a very privileged position in the sense that you know, I am an economist that has studied the New Zealand economy for many years, been on a lot of advisory boards for government and so on, so I know a lot. But I'm also um, in this ridiculous position where we, I have this money, so mm-hmm. I'm able to do something about it. And so I thought, well, I need to. I'm sort of obligated, really, before I get back on my motorcycle and keep riding, <laughs> which is my real passion. Um <laughs> I need to try and do something about this. And so that you, was how the Opportunities Party came about. Yeah, and you said that before, that you're, you're not a big corporate kind of guy. You, you appreciate small business, and that's, that's where you really, your, your heart really is. So what's it like trying to get into Parliament now, which is possibly the biggest beast of them all? Well, what I want is I want better quality policy. And we've produced a huge amount of best practice policy so in a lot of ways, I see us as spokespeople for the policy analyst community. So it's not that I've sat there in a dark room and dreamt all this stuff up. I'm basically presenting to the New Zealand public the best quality policy in many areas and saying this is what we could do if only there was a political will. The other politicians hate me in one sense for daring to do that. But on the other hand, they love me, as I've had from the head, the, from the top of the National and Labour Party. They love it because I'm making sort of fairly radical policy respectable by bringing it into the public domain. So this is how cynical they can be. They've sort of said to me, it's really cool, Gareth, because even if you don't succeed, you've made a lot of these policies respectable, so we can now talk about them. So, you know, if I've done that at the end of this year, I'm happy. And what's, what do you think stopped the bigger political parties or the established political parties from bringing out these quite radical um, policy agendas? The same thing that runs corporates. It's all about the security of tenure of the incumbents. So they don't want to put their job on the line. It's about pleasing the boss. And in this case, mm-hmm. the boss is the voter who, you know, quite often is not aware of what could be achieved in a certain area. And, you know, the cardinal rule of establishment politicians is, for God's sake, don't disturb our voters, you know, so do as little as possible, you know, don't upset them. Whereas, you know, I'm starting with a blank sheet of paper, I don't give a toss about that, I just want to do what's best. So I am the sort of, um, the anarchist in the hybrid tower here. <laughs> and and let, let me ask you this. You talked before about um, that it's hard to give away um, money in a responsible manner from the point of view of your foundation. And then uh, a few breaths later, you talked about how um, not all boats in New Zealand have been rising and therefore you need policy to address that. How do you reconcile these two things where it's uh, 
Now go for it. We've just had it, had a, had somebody walk in the room. We're going to roll with it. Do you want us to set you up with the mic? Oh, you'd be most welcome. Um, so yeah, so you mentioned um, that it's hard to give money away in a responsible manner. Not all boats have been rising within New Zealand. Um, so how do you address that, given that you can't just give money to them? Well, I mean, in that particular instance, um, where the money has gone has been in funding the Morgan Foundation Research Unit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, quite a number of people there who have been doing a lot of this work in terms of policy development. And now, of course, funding this political party because the reality of politics is that it needs money mm. um, for you to be able to participate. Otherwise, your voice doesn't get heard. And, you know, the Nat, I've been saying in the last week, the Nats and the... Labour Party will both spend on this election upwards of five million and three million, respectively. Uh, yeah. So if I need, if I, if we're going to compete with them in Opportunities Party, we've got to spend that sort of level of magnitude of money. So mm. quite clearly, an ordinary guy off the street with you know ordinary means is really struggling to break into the political establishment. I'm in this unique position mm. where where I can have the view or have the empathy with the ordinary folk in the street, but at the same time give it to them in terms of um, you know competing on, a, mm. on, a, on a, with, the, with the money side of things. So that's a hugely privileged position mm. to be in. Because you're right, there are huge barriers to entry, both in terms of, um, well, really in terms of money, uh, not just because they've got you know the National Labour existing political parties, they, they have established donor bases, but also then they get money from the public purse as well to advertise. Yeah, they get taxpayers' money, and the bigger the party is, the more they get. So that even stacks the deck mm. even more. So the people I find the most disenfranchised, actually, in the political arena are the young people. And that's why we've seen such an alienation of young voters from the democratic process is because their voices just don't get heard. Um, What you find is that the establishment parties tend to, under the system we're operating now, tend to do the stuff that pleases their donor base. And that's, you know, it's just one aspect of what's happened in, uh, in these democratic societies over recent decades where they've degenerated from what I would call... Um, Full and fair capitalist models into a neoliberal model. Now, in the neoliberal model, what happens is certain sector interest groups get to dominate not just markets and extract economic rent or obscene profits because they're not subject to competition, Mm -hmm. but they use that oligarchy sort of power to dominate the political process as well. And we're definitely seeing that um, across the world. And and what you and so you see policy formulated to protect that particular status quo. And in the end, if you try to build prosperity um, on a foundation that's anything but fair, you will get a revolt. And I think that's what you're starting to see politically around the world. Mm. And some may be surprised that you you almost set a dichotomy between um, capitalist or fair and fair fair capitalism uh, versus neoliberalism. What what would you say the the difference is? Because some Huge might find difference. that quite yeah. They surprising. don't. Most people haven't got a clue about this, right? They think they use neoliberalism as though it's a synonym for capitalism. It's nothing like a synonym for free uh, markets. Capitalism is about free and competitive markets. So Mm -hmm. every market has got to be competitive. And if it's not, you must regulate it. Otherwise, I will... It's that old saying, you know, monopoly is a terrible thing until you get one. Um, And, you know, I will extract as much money out of a market as I possibly can get away with, 
you know. So when you have a government that actually condones that behaviour and protects those interests, you've really got trouble in terms of opening, opening up the inequality gap. So, um, neo, and neoliberalism um, supports that, right? That's how it's degenerated. I mean, if you, you're too young to remember, but when Roger Douglas came into power in 1984, right, his whole thing was he's against privilege, mm-hmm. right? And I thought, yes, at last, somebody who is actually going to make sure all boats rise and there's just a fear go, you're not expecting everybody to be the same. That's communism. What you, mm-hmm. But what you're expecting is everybody to have the same sort of opportunity as much as you possibly can generate it. Well, unfortunately, um, Douglas um, and his recipe um, wasn't too long before it got totally corrupted. Right? It started with Ruth Richardson's Mother of All Budget, which is the day that inequality in this country started to rise, and it hasn't stopped since. So unfortunately, the legacy to the Roger Nowak's thing will be neoliberalism, not fair and competitive capitalism. Yeah, you're definitely right. I was about eight years uh, before I was born <laughs> in 1984. Um, so let's stick into policy at the moment. So what I'd love to hear about is, first of all, your, your top three priorities and directly how those are going to uh, impact or have an effect on New Zealand's young professionals, both in the short and long term. Okay, so the biggest part, the top priority for us, the flagship policy is tax reform. And what we have got in New Zealand in the income tax regime is a major, major loophole um, where people who have got money can make money um, from it, which is fine, that's capitalism, yep. there's nothing wrong with that, um, but where it gets wrong is that they have a massive tax tax break in so doing. Um, and uh, the, probably the most obvious manifestation of that loophole is in the property market. Mm-hmm. Where all I have to do is just keep buying property after property after property, or bigger and bigger properties, doesn't matter, and I will make more and more money. And that's because there's a tax break on owning those assets. So what we're trying to do with this tax reform package is say, no, 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 you can't do that. If you um, are going to um, make your money out of owning assets, that's fine, that's great, that's capitalism, but you must pay the same tax Mm -hmm. uh, rate per dollar as a salary and wage earner. So when I do the mathematics of that and go through, if we were to put a policy like that in place, we generate about $11 billion a year of extra tax revenue, which is about a third of the income tax revenue currently. So what that would enable us to do is to cut tax rates by a third. So salary and wage earners would be markedly better off as mm-hmm. a result of that policy. So what it does is it stops the overinvestment in property Mm-hmm. that is holding back New Zealand's um, businesses. New Zealand businesses will tell you that their biggest constraint is getting hold of capital. Mm-hmm. And the reason is pretty bloody obvious, because I put all my capital into property. I'm because there's a 0% tax rate, totally. effectively. So I'm investing for a tax break. I'm not investing for the best economic return. So we need to level that, that out. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that occurs, businesses, particularly small businesses, will get access to a lot more money. They will grow. Their owners will do well. Um, and so will their um, employees. So to me, that by far is the biggest thing, is to increase the efficiency of capital distribution in New Zealand and to essentially deal with the um, consequences of getting this wrong, which of course has been this massive um, plunge in the affordability of housing. Mm -hmm. And nobody is that hit harder than the people who are renting, who happen to be the lower income people. So the second part of that, policy, so that's the first policy, um, but there's a, it's got a twin that goes with it, um, and that is the policy um, 
all about making sure, getting rid of the discrimination against low-paid workers. So what we've seen in New Zealand is that modestly paid people um, who should, you know, if trickle-down economics was to be working, this is mm-hmm. how it works. The economy does really well. I mean, let's go back to what uh, the theory behind the Ruth Richardson thing that started all this. We're going to cut taxes on the well-off and we're going to cut welfare on the not-so-well-off. So you look at that and you think, hang on a minute, that doesn't look very good <laughs> in terms of what might be the outcome. They say, no, no, just be patient about this because what will happen is the well-off save a lot more, save and invest, that'll grow the economy and as the economy grows, then the benefits of that will trickle down into, and all boats mm-hmm. will rise. That's the theory. So that's the trouble, why the theory has collapsed is because deliberate government policy, um, particularly with respect to immigration, has seen a whole lot of low-wage type immigrants come into this place, compete with our modestly paid workers, and there's no way they can get trickled down because what should happen as the economy expands like that and we move towards full employment is the low, the firms have to start bidding for their labour. That's what trickle-down is. So you say, shit, I'm running out of people in my factory. I'll have to pay a bit more. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're more profitable than me, so you can afford to employ them. I have to shut down right? because I can't afford to compete with you for that mm-hmm. labour. So, but that's great. I go and do something else and the workers get paid more. But the government's got a deliberate policy, which is, no, no, to em- they say to employers, if you've got problem getting labour, just give us a call and we'll mm-hmm. open up the doors to India or somewhere and we'll bring it in and we'll keep your wage costs. So how the hell can trickle-down work? <clears throat> how can all boats rise in this economy? They can't. This is neoliberalism, mm-hmm. right? This is screw you, buddy. Um, I'm all right. Pull up the ladder. So that's the second part um, of this policy. You have to have a basis of fairness if you want prosperity to be maintained. Mm-hmm. So just to clarify and be really clear about what these are, first of all, you're, you're suggesting um, tax reforms, but primarily through a capital gains tax? No, it's a capital, it's not a capital gains tax, it's a tax. You can, if you want a crude, and it is crude, yep. um, synopsis like a wealth tax, right? Like the whole of Europe. Uh, yes, it's not actually a wealth tax, but it's very similar. So if you own a whole lot of property or a whole lot of assets, um, then every year you will pay tax on those assets, right? Each year. As each a cash out every going? year. Cash out. Wow, that's pretty radical. What, do, you have, do you have a, a sort of idea of what percentage we're talking about? Are we talking about 10? One and a half percent of the value of the assets, Right, because what we're saying is a lot of the income that comes to those assets is basically not being taxed. It's not, you know, I I, I own a whole lot of houses, right, and I just sit there and the value of the houses goes up every year, year after year after year. It's not taxed. Beautiful. So we were talking about um, the the one point five percent wealth tax. Yeah. So it's as I say, it's not quite a wealth tax. It's it's basically. What you do is you deem on all assets that they must make at least 5% a year taxable income, mm-hmm. right? And let's say tax rate's 30%, 30% of 5% is one and a half, right? That's where it comes from. So if you're running, um, you've got a whole lot of assets at work and you're making 10% a year, this tax has no impact on you at all. You're already paying tax on 10%. So it's not double taxation. What it's mm-hmm. doing is it's capturing those that appear to be making no return. You know, not even making 5%. Of course, we are making 5%. We're making it through the capital gain side. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Um, we're not stupid, right? We're not going to invest in anything that doesn't give us the same, uh, at least the return we can get from government stock. Mm-hmm. So we're just bringing all that into the tax base. So we're widening the tax base, which enables us to drop those tax rates hugely. For salary and wage earners, this is massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do, make it fair. Cool. So I totally understand that part. So we're going to have this this uh, ongoing asset tax, I yeah, guess. Asset a- tax. And then we've got um, the we're removing discrimination from lower paid workers. Yeah. And is that you're going to tighten immigration? Um, we're going to change the quality of immigration so that we go back to what it's always been. Immigration is really important for New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Really important. Um, to keep the economy going. But you want migrants that contribute to your my income or wealth. Mm-hmm. Why, why would you bother? I mean, otherwise, the demand for them to come here is infinite. Right? Mm-hmm. This place is nothing. Um, so they could swamp this place easily. So we need to be very choosy about who we bring in. You know, mm-hmm. what are they con- – and the criteria we would apply is strictly in the economic criteria. If you can lift the living standards of New Zealand, is welcome. Otherwise, please just visit. <laughs> Which helps because tourism is our, our largest our largest uh, exporter. Yeah, no, that's right. That's fine. But the thing, again, with tourism, you know, you want to make sure you're maximising the return to New Zealand. It's not just maximising the number of tourists. That's pretty dumb. I mean, in New Zealand might love it because they run a bums-on-seats model. But, you know, I can tell you right now, a lot of towns don't like it mm. um, when, they, you know, everything's sort of annexed. Go and talk to the people, the um, New Zealand residents in Queenstown. Awesome. And the, la- and the last um, or the, the third most important policy, what would you say that is or priority for the Opportunities Party? Well, it's restoring democracy in New Zealand because there's too, been too much alienation of younger voters and um, poorer voters. Um, who are disenfranchised from the from the um, democratic process? The democratic process has been captured right, by the constituencies of some of these parties who are their main main donor base. You know, this is the whole oligarchical um, thing that's um, cancer that neoliberalism has brought to all of these Western democracies. We have to roll that back, and we've got a whole set of details of how we can do that. Which I can give you a little on. Yeah, give us, a, give us a little bit on okay, it. Okay, so I'm a great fan, for example, of deliberative democracy. So that means that, you know, um, you put policies that are going to better everybody's um, well-being in front of the people and you have a conversation with the people um, on why... And then at the end of the day, everybody's well informed and they make a decision. So we just did an exercise in this, right, in the Opportunities Party. Cool. We just did it with cannabis policy. Because uh, guys came to me and said, you've got to have a cannabis policy. And I said, what? And they said, well, young people in particular are pretty hot on cannabis. And I said, but it's just, you know, all just potheads, you know. Like <laughs> it used to be. No, Gareth, read a bit more on this. Understand it. All right, the issue with cannabis policy is that it's increasing the amount of harm done to New Zealanders. And so if we legalise cannabis, we'll decrease the amount of harm. And I'm thinking, why the hell does this work? You know, so we got into it. It's probably what experts. most people think about uh, trickle-down economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it comes down to the fact that by having cannabis illegal, the criminal underworld steps in to the supply chain. And so mm. everybody who wants to smoke, and, you know, 40% of all New Zealand adults have smoked, and 24% of, of youths have smoked in the last year. So, you know, we're talking about a lot of people here all have to have contact, basically, with the criminal underworld. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it causes 
sheer mayhem in terms of, you know, they're trying to get them addicted. This is how gateway drugs work, right? It's through this. It's not through the chemicals, it's through the social side of it. They try to get them addicted on, um, on to pee and all the rest of it, where there's far more profits to be made, mm-hmm. right? And so, of course, the social downside of that's enormous. So mm-hmm. if you want to decrease harm um, with cannabis, you have to legalise it and have a fairly tightly regulated supply um, from the government that controls price mm-hmm. and potency and all the rest of it. This, all the evidence points to this. It's actually the same model we use by alcohol, believe it or not, <laughs> which is causing a hell of a lot, I might just say, causing a hell of a lot more harm at the moment because, of course, we've decreased the age for alcohol in 1999 and all the evidence tells us is that the harm's got worse. Mm-hmm. So we've overshot on alcohol and undershot on cannabis. Very, very interesting. So um, just, to, just to re-summarise those three three top priorities, first of all, tax reform through um, the asset tax, um, changing immigration regulation to ensure that we're getting um, migrants who are going to better the economy, right. improve our living standards, yes. and then having more, I suppose, deliberate democracy and consultation with voters. Yeah, empowering um, the people who actually have the votes. Right? Really, big. So we've got to have a constitution. Right, so you know what your rights are. Mm-hmm. At the moment, nobody apart from Jeffrey Palmer knows what your bloody rights are, right? So we've got to have them transparent on a couple of pages so you know and you'll staunchly defend them and then mm-hmm. we've got to restore the democracy of the sovereignty of parliament and take it away from cabinet. The executive at the moment's got all the power. That's a major problem. That's why you have an upper house or a constitutional um, authority. Fantastic. And just how those are going to directly um, impact New Zealand's young professionals, I'd imagine on the tax side, um, because that it'd be huge because we're decreasing income taxes because uh, younger people tend not to have as many assets unless they're endowed with them through... through um, yeah, that's totally, that's totally right. But the, it does more than that. It also increases the supply of capital. You know, mm-hmm. I'll be instead of me just buying house after house after bloody house, I'll be looking for businesses mm-hmm. to invest in, so I can you know build my build my wealth over time, so I can retire earlier. So you know, if you've got a, you're there with a you know business idea, try, doing a startup, trying to get going, and you've got no capital, I've got it coming out of my ears. You know, I'm looking for you now instead of just looking for more property to invest in. So it actually um, catapults the economy forward through the small business sector. Mm, and then the immigration side, if we've got if if we assume that younger people tend to be the lowest skilled, then if we've got a lower supply of, of low skilled immigrants coming through the country, then um, we, we have more comp- um, we have less supply in the market for lower skilled workers, price rises, they're yeah. better off and they're paying lower taxes. That's right. And the price of labour should rise as the economy's doing mm-hmm. well. It's only when the price of labour starts right across the board to get out of control that you have inflation, you have to slow the shop down. Mm-hmm. But trickle down is all about wages rising. When an economy's been successful, like New Zealand is at the moment, hugely successful, everybody should be, that is trickle down, everybody should be sharing it. Mm. And then lastly, I suppose, on, on the democracy front, um, because, you, and you've got some fantastic stats on your website as well with graphs showing um, how there has been decreased voter turnouts specifically yeah. among young people, um, both in terms of registering to vote um, and then actually turning up on election day. Um, so trying to get them more involved in the process. But they have to be inspired, you know. Mm. They have to have a reason to turn out. And I just think you've seen that, actually, in Britain in the last week or so, um, where suddenly that voter turnout from the young people went to 70%. Well, for us, it's down under 50 
Mm. So, you know, that's the sort of um, engagement I'm trying to spark here because otherwise they'll just keep taking from us, mm. you know. Fair enough. Look, you probably were wondering when I when I walked in the door with this this spinning game wheel or wheel of fortune, I like to call it, what, what the hell is he going to get me to do here? And um, I, I always say that I find politics incredibly negative and I think it turns a lot of people off. And so we're, instead of dirty politics, I, I try and call this clean politics. So I've got all of the uh, existing parties uh, around, the, um, around the wheel, mm-hmm. um, e- except for the Māori Party because I haven't updated it since I, I had Marama Fox on here last week. Um, and I'm going to spin it. And um, when it lands on one of the parties, I'd like you to say something, a policy you admire about them, a politician totally. you, you like, just something good to, to get, get the... Uh, Get the the touchy feelies going. That's fine as long as you don't. It doesn't land on act. Well, I was hoping that we might get act or um, NZ first because I That's thought fine. I thought you might find them. Uh, it'd be interesting. Whatever. Cool. We've got the greens. Okay. Well, that's really easy. We. Um, we align very heavily with the Greens when it comes to environmental protection and enhancement. In fact, you know, um, that's one of my legacies is all the conservation work that Morgan Foundation has done and is still doing. So I have no issues at all with the Greens on environmental. What really annoys me um, with the Greens is their refusal to work with National. So that immediately means that the Greens can only ever have influence 50% of the time if they're bloody lucky, actually. And the issue then is they put themselves in the corner because when Labor get elected, they don't have to take any notice of the Greens. I mean, who else are they going to call? Um, so they will deal with New Zealand first and that. So my problem with the Greens is I think of them as dumb environmentalists, right, <laughs> as opposed to actually you know, doing what they should be doing, which is protecting and enhancing our environment, no matter who the blooming government is. Okay, so they've got to get off their high horse and realise that, you know, people who are capitalists aren't necessary anti the environment. Until they do that, they're a joke. I tell you why. Uh, we did ask for nice things, but I thought it was a great point anyway. And actually, I'm catching up with James Shaw this afternoon to do a similar podcast, so I'll have to put the question to him as well. Well, James you and I used to work in the same office, so I know James pretty well. Um, and of the Greens, if you had asked me which of the Greens I uh, admired most, it would definitely be um, James Shaw. Um, he's just got a bit more education to do. <laughs> and look, we always end um, these podcasts with, with, the, with the same final two questions, which is, first of all, um, there, there's a girl driving along the motorway, there's a guy in the gym, and they're listening to this, um, and they're young professionals, and they're thinking, why should I vote for, for Gareth Morgan? Why should I vote for the Opportunities Party? What, what would you say to them? If you care about anyone apart from yourself, you, if you care or your parents, or your kids, if you care for generations, if you care for people who are going without in this country, which has increased enormously um, over, over the last 20 years, then Opportunities Party is the only one to vote for. But if you only care about yourself, vote for ACT. If you um, only care about maintaining the current situation with no change, same old, same old, then vote for Labor um, or for, for National. Um, and if you, uh, and that's enough, really. So it's about if you care, then think about this stuff really deeply, because that's what I'm trying to do here. That's what the Opportunities Party, all the people I'm getting around me, and they're mainly young. I'm still the oldest, which is bloody great. <laughs> um, and then vote. 
opportunities. Fantastic. And the, and the last one is that you're at your family's barbecue and your grandson or your nephew, they're eight years old, they run up to you and they're asking you about what you do. And they, they want you to articulate what your big vision for, for New Zealand is. How do you explain to an eight-year-old, what is your big vision for New Zealand? I would say to the eight-year-old, um, you don't know it yet, Lucy, but you live on, in heaven here. This place is one of the best places in the world, if not the best. My job is to make sure that by the time I'm dead, I've left you in a better place than it was when I came here, and that'll be your job when you're grown up. Fantastic. Gareth Morgan, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for listening to the New Zealand Young Professionals podcast. As mentioned, I am your host, Ed McKnight. If you want to track me down personally, my email is ed at edmcknight.com. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening to the show today, uh, check us out at nzyoungprofessionalspodcast.com uh, or hit subscribe in your favourite podcast listening app. Until next time.